Next week, Nathan is going to be back from the backpacking trip. Got couples from our church backpacking out in the middle of nowhere. And uh, they will be back next week. And Nathan will be preaching uh, on deacon ministry next week. And, and so I'm excited about that uh, for my sake um, because I need to be preached to as well. Um, God's good order for leadership in the church, part three, the qualifications. How does the Father... How does the Father maintain a church planting movement globally among unreached people groups that then make the people group a reached people group? How does that happen? Well, the Lord of the harvest, King Jesus, raises up people to go to these unreached people groups with the gospel. The gospel does its powerful work. This Romans 1.16 powerful transformative work in people, by the Lord Jesus, through His Spirit, and He begins to do the work of building His church. This is an amazing reality to behold in reading church history, missions history, but also as we get to observe it with our naked eyes, as we engage the globe with the gospel, and we watch the church being constructed in our people group. One soul at a time rescued from the kingdom of darkness. You can even begin to see who the Lord may put a desire in to be a shepherd someday. And how cool to have been in the room with those men as they are receiving the gospel and being equipped for the ministry. In building his church, the Lord Jesus begins to gather the people he saves. And then he either puts a desire in the hearts of men to lead them. So that they might then learn with the scriptures. And this is crazy how, how on the field, as the gospel is in the frontier areas. When they have the scriptures in their language. The scriptures are capable of teaching how to shepherd by themselves. They're growing faster than we are. In the states with the scriptures alone. How cool is that? Or savvy, well-equipped missionaries instruct with the scriptures in culturally appropriate ways how to shepherd the Lord's people. And then the missionary wisely backs off and watches the chief shepherd, Jesus, multiply and raise up men to under-shepherd the movement. We see this happening at gloriously rapid rates on the frontiers of the gospel today. So these qualifications in 1 Timothy 3, 1-7 are not hindrances to a movement. They're not barriers to the work. These qualifications were in place in one of the most exciting times in church history for the rapid advance of the gospel. That is the time in which this was written. Now something important here. These qualifications are holy, ongoing and long-term moral characteristics of men seeking to follow the Lord Jesus, who have, by supernatural means, developed the desire to shepherd Jesus' people under Jesus' leadership. These qualifications are not momentary statuses. These qualifications are long-term moral characteristics. Illustration. They're not snapshots, they're not photographs of a person's life. They're a movie of their life. If these qualifications were snapshots, if they were statuses, no man could qualify to be a pastor. 
For example, back in October, when the man sought to invade my home at 5.15 in the morning, the bad guy was thinking that I was gone. But he met, to his chagrin, this 240-pound hulk of a beast. And I, in force and, yea, much violence, sent this man packing while threatening to part his skull with a hollow point. Amen. At that moment, and for quite a few days, my level of hospitality and in welcoming strangers was not real good. I didn't invite him in to share with him the gospel and sit him down and explain to him he was lost and in need of a savior. I threatened to send him straight. Well, you know. One might say that I was disqualified for pastoral ministry because I wasn't hospitable to outsiders for a time. If you took a snapshot of that moment and you just posted it, who would look like the criminal? Me! You put the barrel of a Taurus on a man's forehead. Well, you look like the bad guy. However, if you looked at the movie, you would recognize that my status for the moment made me appear hostile to outsiders. I wasn't gentle. As a matter of fact, I was quite violent. However, the movie... The long-term evidence of my life is contrary to that isolated incident in which I was and my family were innocent victims. We are, by God's grace, quite hospitable to outsiders. Look at my children. I also don't default to violent means to solve problems as my first option. But at that instance, it was required. The long-term, ongoing moral, moral characteristics of hospitality and gentleness are quite intact. Therefore, as we come to these qualifications, some may seek to make statuses, snapshots out of them, and they turn them into battering rams to beat men up and repel them from pastoral ministry. If these qualifications were statuses, there would be no church led by pastors anywhere and the gospel's influence would be lacking. Let me take this a step further. If these were statuses, there would be many men and women constantly in the third step of church discipline due to momentary sin. Would there not? Yeah. Question for you. Ready for this? Are these qualifications only for the pastor, elder, overseer? I mean, in other words, can you be a drunkard? And, 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 and we, and, and, and the pastor, elder, overseer must not be? Can your thought life be impure and ours be pure? Can you be violent and we must be gentle? Can you be unsound in your thinking and us must be sound in our thinking? The obvious answer to that question is no. These qualifications are for everyone. They're specifically applied here in 1 Timothy 3, 1-7 to the leaders because they will be the ones most visible and therefore the first to represent the king in his kingdom. 
The pastor, elder, overseer will be the first ones in Ephesus to go to the arena and be fed to the lions. That doesn't happen for us here. So it's a little more easy and benign to use these as statuses, snapshots, as opposed to movies, long-term characteristics. And so Paul applies them to the pastor, elder, overseer, because they're going to be the first ones arrested. They're going to be the first ones marginalized. They're going to be the first ones brought up on charges of disobeying Caesar. But keep in mind, these qualifications are not lost on the congregation. These are not statuses. These qualifications or moral characteristics are the fiber of a man and a woman's being. As they're transformed by the gospel and lived out in public over the long haul. Even the grammatical structure of it makes that clear. They're nouns and adjectives. And the only verbs that are present are present indicative or future infinitive, indicating the long-term characteristic rather than the status. You combine these moral characteristics with a God-given desire and you have a pastor, elder, overseer. You take pastors who live out these moral characteristics, you preach the Bible, you seek to make disciples, and you find yourself in the midst of a spirit-driven movement to multiply the kingdom of God by raising up men to lead, plant, and multiply the church locally and globally. They are not barriers. They are glorious qualifications for the people of God so that in the church, God may raise up men from within the fellowship to lead and to go and multiply the kingdom. So don't think these speak just to pastor, elders, and overseers. This may be a little uncomfortable for you today because this is to all of us. What does Paul tell us about selecting contextually, these pastor, elder, overseers. Well, what I have for us here is I have some bold statements. If you're looking online, you'll see them in bold. They're sort of overarching umbrellas in which we put the specific qualifications underneath them and spend some time unpacking them. The first thing I want you to note in verse 1 is a most trustworthy saying. This is what Paul says. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. A most trustworthy saying. Notice in verse 1, Paul starts out the qualifications with a very encouraging statement. If anyone. Not the guy that the light shines upon his head and everybody goes, whoa, the golden child. No. Not the kid who had a great camp experience and now believes God's called him to ministry. Pastoral ministry is not for the seminary graduate or the good-looking and chiseled television or internet hunk. Pastoral ministry is not for the podcast superstar. Pastoral ministry is not for the man who has his books ghost-written to the appearance that he writes them all and puts them out like a Pez dispenser. We look at these things and often men think, I can't be that right. They aren't either. Pastoral ministry is not for the man who pays a research company to do all of his research. And there are men who do that. There are companies who will do research for pastors. 2000 bucks a month. You give them your preaching schedule, they'll do all your research for you. That's why they're podcast superstars. 
That's why I went to graduate school, so I could learn to do that. FYI. It's cheating. Pastoral ministry is not for the exceptionally good communicator. It is for the man who exhibits the requirements along with a God-generated desire for shepherding. If you missed the past two weeks, there's so much building up. So you go back and listen to those and that God-given desire piece, super important. What are these requirements? What are these requirements? A word to the ladies first. We've already covered 1 Timothy 2, 11 to 15. Paid a price for that, by the way. It's been pretty interesting. The biblical role of woman is not less, and it's no less vital. Don't let our culture's lies rob you of good order. The text will address the role of ladies. And we'll get to that. But let's let the text do it. Whether single, married, or whatever, the text will address that soon enough. But let's let the text speak and let's follow God's good order and let's see what he has to multiply his church. In this good order, we also see in verse 1 this word aspiration. If any man who aspires, any man who aspires may put himself under the microscope of the qualifications of pastor, elder, overseer. Any man who aspires may put himself under the microscope of these qualifications as the long-term movie and character of their life. What is aspiration here? The word used by Paul means to stretch out one's hand. In other words, any man who sets his efforts on shepherding the people of God is aspiring. It's no sin to aspire to be under-shepherd of Jesus Christ. If that aspiration is in place, it may be the stirring in the man's soul by the Holy Spirit. And it is no sin to aspire that. Do not, however, confuse this with aspiring to be a CEO and a leader according to a hierarchical governing system. We've been clear already. The text has been clear. We've spent two weeks unpacking that. This aspiration is to be like Christ in all the wins and the suffering. That is why this aspiration is no sin. This aspiration involves no self-glory or no greater status. This aspiration leads one to joyfully make themselves a target for the glory of Jesus. As I've alluded to already, for the men of the church at Ephesus, to aspire to the office of overseer was to aspire to be the first to die when persecution came. That is no sin. That is a God-given desire. I'm of the opinion that one of the best things for the health of the church in North America will be difficulty. This is no easy task, and it is no sin to aspire to it. Notice also in verse 1, Paul uses another word called desire. Paul says, if anyone aspires to this office, that it is a noble desire. Two things to note here. Desire means to have an affection toward. Noble simply means good. Paul says that if one has the aspiration to overseer, that the affection is a good one. Men, it's not considered noble to be a shepherd in the church in our culture today. Being a pastor may be considered by some to be what con men do. Due to some 
whose lives, the movie of their life, does not meet the qualification. What I would argue is that regardless of what others have sold pastoral ministry to be, it is the noblest task on the planet to shepherd the people that will inherit the earth. What a noble task. And what a God-given good aspiration and desire. Paul now moves to some specifics beyond this open invitation to any man who has a desire to go first. There are overarching descriptions given here for your help. And I've explained that already. They're in bold. And they're sort of umbrellas under which we'll look at these individual qualifications. The specific qualification Paul gives is in italics under the bold description if you're looking along. If not, I'm sorry. I totally just lost you. But I'll try to walk you through it. So he must be qualified. He must be qualified. And don't forget, these apply to all of us. And here are my big overarching umbrellas. His reputation, his marriage, his family, his marriage and family, his self-mastery, his temperament, his maturity, and his ministry. So let's start with his reputation. Paul uses some wording here in verse 2 and verse 7. The first qualification under his reputation is above reproach. Above reproach stands as the banner over all of these qualifications. And as the banner, it sets the stage for understanding all these qualifications, not as statuses, not as snapshots or skills, but rather as moral qualifications. The word used here carries the idea of not being able to be seized. In other words, the man cannot rightly be convicted of a moral wrong. This isn't being sinless. This is sinful man seeking to be right and repentant when they do sin. And then verse 7, he says they must be well thought of by outsiders. The aspiring man must have a reputation among those outside the church that is stellar. Can you have a reputation outside the church that's not stellar? No. This applies to all of us. And here is a key point. It's vital to have a vehicle for being connected to the outside world for the advance of the gospel and for being salt and light to one's location in seeking its good and in doing so to keep a strong reputation. One of the greatest advancements of the gospel is when believers have a strong reputation among unbelievers. The next overarching category, and we're going to bog down here for just a minute, and then we'll speed up pretty quickly and, and, and work through these qualifications, is his marriage and family. His marriage and family. Paul says in verse 2 here, he must be the husband of one wife. This is the most debated qualification among scholars. However, my observation is that the majority of evangelical Christianity leans in the direction I'm about to share with you. And I've read and read and read and researched and researched and I didn't pay a company to do it for me. Don't have the money. Even if I did, I wouldn't use it for that. Have three boys to feed. Made it up. I've not been that way in the past and the text has convinced me. All of us growing up in the South have heard 500 different options perhaps for this. Teaching I'd received and 
the past or poor exposition by others and even myself have often poorly influenced the exegesis of this qualification. The pastor must be above reproach in relation to women. And men and women, all of you, listen to this very carefully. Jim hit it this morning in the Sermon on the Mount. He must be the husband of one wife. The Greek text literally reads one woman man. There's no verb there. One woman man. Paul's not referring to a leader's marital status as the absence of the definite article, nerddom, sorry, in the original indicates. So if your translation says the husband of one wife, the the is supplied to help make sense of the sentence. It's not there in the Greek text. It's one woman man. Indicating not marital status, but his moral character. The issue is his moral, carnal behavior. Many men and many women married only once are not one man, women, and one women, men. Many with one wife are unfaithful to her. Many wives with one man are unfaithful to him. While remaining married to one woman is commendable, it's no indication or guarantee of moral purity. Why begin the, the list of qualifications with this one? Why does Paul do that? I think Paul does this because this area may be the most targeted. It was then, it is now. The family unit is perhaps the easiest and most strategic Target. The failure to be a one woman man has put many a man out of ministry and wrecked many marriages inside the church of Jesus Christ. Various interpretations have been offered that truly skirt around the real issue here. To simply state that a man who would be pastor must never have had another wife ever, ever, ever for any reason is to miss the point and make a shallow issue that never confronts the real sin. Some argue that the intent is to forbid polygamy. I don't believe that's the case here. Here's my reasoning. A man could not even be a member of the church if that were the case, much less a leader. As it stands, polygamy wasn't an issue in Ephesus and it was uncommon in Roman society because encounters and no cause divorce were so easily available in Roman culture. Some would argue that Paul's forbidding remarriage after the death of a spouse. But remember, this standard, like the rest of them, are moral character, not status. To take it further, the Bible permits and honors second marriages under correct circumstances, right? Paul, in 1 Timothy 5.14, expected younger widows to remarry and raise a family. And in this case, according to 1 Timothy 5.9, she would still be described as a one-man woman. 1 Corinthians 7.39 permits the woman or man whose spouse has died to remarry if they marry a Christian. Some have held, and I have been there in the past, that this text excludes divorced men from spiritual leadership or service. Again, this position ignores the fact that Paul is not referring to marital status. Nor does the Bible forbid all remarriage after divorce. In Matthew 5, 31 and 32, in Matthew 19, 9, Jesus permitted remarriage when a divorce was caused by adultery for the innocent party. 
Paul gave a second occasion when remarriage is permitted. When the unbelieving spouse initiates a divorce. 1 Corinthians 7.15 So while God hates all divorce, Malachi 2, He's gracious to the innocent party in those two situations. Which makes sense. Therefore, since remarriage in and of itself is not a sin, it's not necessarily a blight on a man's character. Now, if the divorce resulted from the man's inability to lead his family or reproachable behavior on his part, then it would be a disqualification, right? Because the banner above reproach. But if he were the innocent party, then it would not be a blight on his character since he sought to obey the Scriptures and the other party's efforts were contrary. A final expositional point here. And here is to me the most compelling point. Is in 1 Timothy 5, 9, Paul says that the widow is not to be enrolled for help unless she is less than 60 years old and having been the wife of one husband. The exact same phrase he uses for this qualification, except applying it to the woman who's a widow. If Paul means marital status rather than moral character, and if her husband divorced her unjustly, she burns the toast. I'm done. And she is innocent of wrongdoing. Then the phrase one man woman means the church is to let her starve for no wrong done on her part. You want to go there? I'm quite certain that's not what Paul means. Paul's not addressing status but moral character. In other words, the widow cannot be blamed for anything her husband did wrong that caused her any harm. She's been blameless and her moral character is intact and therefore should be enrolled for help. Some have held that Paul's excluding single men from ministry. If that's the case, Paul's excluding himself because he was single. Finally, and I think this is important for every single one of us in this room, a one-woman man is a man completely devoted. Ladies, it is a woman completely devoted, not just in body, but also in entire being. Thinking. Men, if your thinking is not intact, you are not a one-woman man. You feel that? When you make that vow, standing before God and the fellowship, you're making a vow not just for physical oneness, but mental and emotional oneness too. We're souls, not just biological entities. And so therefore the mind and the mind's soul commitment to her is the point. Which is why Jesus said it's not just adultery. It is the thought leading to it. And so to shallow this out by making it a status misses the point and allows us to let our minds go wherever we want them to go as long as I don't physically break the covenant. I can look at what I want to look at whenever I want to look at it, think what I want to think as long as my wife doesn't know. Is that the status? Is that what it is? You bet it's not. This one woman man is a man who loves desires and thinks only of her. Flip that around for you ladies. Love, desire, think only of Him. They are pure in thought and in conduct. 
don't hold a pastor, elder, overseer to a standard you are not keeping. At some point, I want to address this from up here about the technological age in which we live and the access that we have to things that are causing devastation on our marriages. And I would argue young men and women who have access by smartphone to it without hinder. I would argue 100%, 100% of young men that I teach on a daily basis have already had their minds and souls pillaged by what they've seen on their smartphone. Parenting 101, don't give them one. Would you give them a magazine? Here. Would you? You look shocked. No, we wouldn't. Why would we let their souls be pillaged and their future home be pillaged? So they can have some technology and their friends won't laugh at them? Godly men love not just in physical act, but thought and emotion too. Amen? Or oh me? It's time for purity to rule the church. Holiness, righteousness. And so if you want to be a pastor, elder, overseer, expect some hard questions about what you think and see. Because we will ask them. We've had to ask some hard questions to ourselves. And measure up. Yeah, I was just married to my wife. That's it. What are you thinking? What are you looking at? Can I see your internet browser? Can I see your history list? By the way, if you ask me to marry you, we will do that with your fiancé present. It matters. Much of the congregation at one time, due to the nature of the city of Ephesus and its history, had fallen prey to this kind of stuff. If that was before a man became a Christian, obviously it wouldn't be a problem. See 2 Corinthians 5.17. Why? Because if any man in Christ, he is a same old thing. New creation. If this has happened after he became a Christian, it would be a problem, right? If it had happened after he assumed a leadership role, it definitely would be a disqualification. See Ted Haggard. See Jimmy Swaggart. And the list goes on and on. These same standards for moral purity apply still today to all of us. But also, he says in verse 4 about his home and his family that he must manage his household well. Pastor, elder, overseer in verse 4 must be the overseer of a well-ran home. That doesn't mean he does everything. It does mean he makes sure all things are pointed in the right direction. He also says here, in verse 2, we move on to a new category. He must be self-mastered. His self-mastery. That is, he has mastery over himself. He's self-disciplined. Does that mean you don't have to be self-disciplined? Does that mean you can be a slacker? Pastors must be on their game, but I don't have to be. I can be late to work, do whatever I want to. Because I'm not a pastor. No. Self-mastery. Verse 2, he says, he's sober-minded. It literally means Watchful. This word also means its secondary meaning is pretty wild. It means limiting his freedom. Meaning this man keeps a rein on his thinking and what he does. 
And he fights the war in the mind well. Do you recognize that the greatest war you fight is in your thinking long before it gets on the outside? It is the greatest war we fight. Sober-minded, limiting his freedom, being watchful about his mind and keeping his thinking, keeping his thinking straight. Number two, verse two, he also says self-controlled. The word self-controlled means this pastor is self-disciplined. He can self-start. He can self-complete a task. He rules himself well. Verse 2 also says respectable. Respectable means orderly. Doesn't mean he wears a coat and tie. Thank God. Summer's getting here. Shorts, flip-flops are coming. Praise his name. Means orderly. The idea is that his life and direction are not identified by confusion, but rather with a clear vision and purpose creating order. I would argue that's a need for every student as well. Clear direction, clear purpose, clear order. What are you made for? What are you wired to do? And guess what? Getting an income off of it is not top of the list. That was free. So, orderly. Num- verse 3, not a drunkard. The word literally means always near wine. In other words, he's not always near wine. He can control his consumption. It's not a command to abstain. Well, that drives some Southern Baptist wild and Jesus drank Welch's. Yes, he, no. It's not a command to abstain. It's a command to be in control. That includes the Oreos too. That includes the Chips Ahoy's too. You know what I'm saying? He's in control. Don't take a picture of me at lunch. (laughs) Hungrier than I've ever been. (laughs) Verse 3, in his self-mastery, he's not a lover of money. The pastor can't be in love with stuff and letting money Rule them in order to get stuff. That goes for everybody else too. The chief deity in Western culture is money. It rules our decision making. It rules our educational choices. Negatively. The man or woman that's free of the dollar is a generous giver. pastor recognizes that their use of God's resources is vital and as a manager of God's resources he's held accountable then his temperament what about his temperament verse 3 Paul says he's not violent but gentle literally violent meaning not violent the negative of violent meaning not a striker I failed this one in October with potential home invasion However, these are long-term moral characteristics, not statuses. The man of God must display an ability to be gentle and not seeking to strike everyone who comes his way. I'm thankful for Nehemiah 13.25, however. If you don't know what that says, go look it up because sometimes it's needed. But it's not their default. Verse 3, not quarrelsome. The man of God will not unnecessarily battle with people. There are times where a battle needs to be had. But he's not 
quick to battle. And he's quick to let a verbal altercation pass by and exercise wisdom. He's not quarrelsome. It's very important also inside the non-Christian community. There are certain times at DFAC's board meetings and there are certain times with certain things happening, particularly in the Georgia legislature right now, about the privatization of foster care. If you're not aware that's going on, read up on your news. Because it has big implications, big implications in the state of Georgia. I'm the only probably right-leaning politically person in the room. And there are times I just need to let that pass. You know why? Because Jesus is more important than a political stance. So I'm not going to quarrel over the privatization of foster care. What about his maturity? Verse 6, he's not a recent convert. There must be some spiritual maturity. As we noted last week, due to the missionary nature of the church in the first century, there are some instances where the spiritual maturity isn't measured in years, i.e. a snapshot, but rather the knowledge and capacity due to the advance of the gospel in new places, meaning they are mature spiritually. They know the gospel, they know the scriptures, well equipped by the Spirit to lead. So it's not... A year span, it is a moral standing of understanding, knowing, and applying the truth of Scripture. His ministry. What about his ministry? Verse 2, back to verse 2, Paul uses the qualification of hospitable. What that means is that the, the word literally carries the meaning entertaining strangers. This is the missionary component. The moral standing of the pastor must be one that delights in the inclusion of outsiders in the kingdom of God. You've got to be good with all. Whether they smell bad, look different, whatever the case is, the pastor, elder, overseer must be welcoming of outsiders. And that goes for all of us. Also in verse 2, he says, able to teach. Literally, the qualification reads, skilled at teaching. Now, how is this a moral qualification? Some people say that this is the only skill listed in the qualifications. I don't think it's a skill at all. I think it's a moral qualification. I would argue that many men are great communicators but not skilled at teaching. Being a good talker does not mean you're a good teacher. My lesson plans are horrible and I'm not going anywhere. Ms. Mabry, are you back there? She's observing me tomorrow. <clears throat> My lesson plans are tight, baby. Tight. <laughs> if I communicate well, but I'm going nowhere with my communication, am I able to teach? No. Someone may be able to hold a person's attention and wow them with their speaking ability, but doesn't teach the truth. I watch most TV preachers. This qualification is moral because the mandate from chapter 1, this is like, like 27 weeks ago, remember chapter 1? The mandate is that the pastor must teach in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. Not according, not according to the spirit of the age. This means that the pastor is not just a good communicator, but he's a communicator of right things and the right application of things. It's a shallow qualification if it's simply the ability to talk good. There are lots of pulpits filled with good talkers who say nothing. 
that makes disciples. Nothing that calls people to holiness. Nothing that demands that the gospel go to all nations. That's not able to teach. That's good talker. Tonto, good talker. It's, I watched Lone Ranger last night, the new one, and I have Tonto in my head. I'm like, oh, wow, that sounded, sorry. Rain it in, rain it in. I remember the moment the Lord broke that in me. It's hard for me to tell this story without weeping because I was in Fort Worth, Texas, second year seminary. Jennifer and I were just married, and um, Dr. Craig Blomberg was on campus to lecture on the false theology of the prosperity gospel. And if you ever seen Dr. Craig Blomberg, Eric, you're laughing. God, God's going to get you for that. I'm just kidding, just kidding. You know, Blomberg is not a pretty man. I mean, just, I'm not either. So, I mean, I was required to attend, and I don't like being required to do anything. I hadn't, dele- I hadn't deemed Blomberg's style or appearance worthy of the more entertaining speakers in the Christian world, so I wasn't happy to be required to go. So I went with a bad attitude, arms folded, and I sat beside Emmett. Bitterness in my soul at being made to attend. With the not pretty, not good talking, Dr. Blomberg began to speak. The Spirit of God filled him and broke my heart. And he did it in a way that he hadn't had to do since. Dr. Blomberg became a hero that day, not because he was pretty or a good talker, but because his teaching was in moral rightness, therefore full of the Spirit. Do not confuse Spirit-filled Preaching with clear talking and pretty faces. Rightly recognized spirit and broken men filled with power. See Moses. I can't talk good. Okay, I give you Aaron. Dang it. See Paul. You read Corinthians? Apollos talks better than you. You're weak and small in stature. Send Apollos. Spirit filled does not equal good talker. And pretty man. It's broken man. Filled with power. And Christian culture is rotten in the West. Because we put the superstar on the front page. And then other men look and say, I can't be like that. You don't want to be. You get what you can produce in your own power like that. You take it. I want to be a man that is incapable that God makes capable. He takes dyslexic people and makes them scholars. And it's His glory, not ours. Samuel Logan Bringle. I think I'm pronouncing his last name right. I'm phonetically sounding that out. Us dyslexic people kind of wrestle with that kind of stuff. Like, Bringle Bringley. Samuel Logan Bringle. Hook it on Pahonics, work it for me. <laughs> Sorry. I can make fun of myself, it's okay. It's funny to me, so I'm take me a minute to recoup. Samuel Logan Bringle, one of the early leaders of the Salvation Army, said this. This is a great statement. Spiritual leadership is not won by promotion. 
but by many prayers and tears. It is attained by confessions of sin and much heart searching and humbling before God. By self-surrender, a courageous sacrifice of every idol, a bold, deathless, uncompromising and uncomplaining embracing of the cross. And by an eternal, unfaltering looking unto Jesus crucified. It is not gained by seeking great things for ourselves, but rather like Paul, by counting those things that are gained to us as loss for Christ. That is a great price, but it must be unflinchingly paid by him who would not merely be a nominal, but a real spiritual leader of men. A leader whose power is recognized and felt in heaven, on earth, and in hell. End quote. Father, over 11 years, has been making men like that in this fellowship. And we are receiving the fruit of that. And we will install some of them on May 18th. Do you think you have that trustworthy aspiration that is a good and noble desire? I think one of the great mistakes we've made is we've used non-biblical language to describe pastoral ministry. We use this word like calling, I'm called. But what about the rest of us? Are we uncalled? That's not Bible language. And we use that to make heroes out of people. I'm called, but what am I? Chopped liver? No. Does the text say if anyone is called, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task? How did God sustain church planting movements? How did Ephesus and the churches of Galatia and Sardis and Thyatira and Pergamum, how did they get planted? How did the church at Rome just get there? Because one superstar guy, right, pastored them by remote, you know, and they videoed him in so that, because nobody else can teach, so we've got to video this guy in, right? Because the rest of you bums aren't called, right? Let's use Bible language. Do you think you have a trustworthy aspiration that's a good and noble desire? Are you willing to put your life under the microscope of these qualifications? Because you'll be the first to take the target. You, you got to I mean, instantly target on back. Instantly object of reproach. Instantly seek to be lured into fights. Instantly overworked. Instantly underpaid. Nobody, like back in the day, like in the 1500s, you made good money being a pastor. And that's how, like, you know, George Mueller tells a great story of the reason his dad sent him off to theology school. Because that's how you got a good job. He'd tell you he's unconverted when he went to graduate school to be a pastor. Right? So, is there a noble, trustworthy aspiration of a good desire in you and willing to put your life under the microscope? Is the trajectory of your life pointed in the direction of these qualifications? I would ask you to make yourself known. And see if you might want to enter into learning if you really want to be a pastor, elder, overseer. How cool would it be to be an Acts 13 church? If you're not sure what that is, just go read Acts 13. My seminary president back in the day, Dr. Ken Hemphill, wrote a book called The Antioch Effect. 
And it's just a short little book on dealing with this whole movement in Acts 13 of the church at Antioch. Raising up qualified men and filling the cities and communities with fellowships that are on mission. How cool would that be? Do you think that's even possible in the West? Or is this stuff in the Bible just like Bible speak? That's a great story, but that doesn't really happen anymore. How cool if that would happen here. It's happening globally. It can happen here. It is happening here. And so what would it look like if fellowships were raising up and training qualified men to equip disciples to be qualified men and women? To fill the dark reaches of Roman Floyd County and the nations. How cool would it be if we were planting churches that adopt unreached people groups? Out of the 160 churches planted out of Northwood Church in Keller, Texas, from which we are planted, only a handful of us have actually followed through with adopting and engaging unreached people groups. I'm going to be going out there on April 23rd to 25th to preach to this group of church planters about engaging the mission because they're not doing it. How cool would it be if we were able to send out men who love the nations and fellowships who love the nations and love their towns? The Antioch effect. Do you think that could happen? It can happen. I believe if we seek the Lord well enough and live lives like this, it will happen. It will happen. And I believe it will be awesome one day to see Roman Floyd County worshiping the Lord Jesus the way he deserves to be worshiped in word and deed and song. Right now we have an opportunity to worship him in song. Will you do it? Will you worship him in song? Will you come to him who has met all of the requirement of the law on our behalf so that we can come and by His power live a life that reflects the moral qualities reflected in this text? Will you worship Him for that great gift? Let's pray and let's come and worship Him together. Father, I pray now in Jesus' name that You would do a work of grace in our midst. I pray, Father, that You would continue what You have started. Eleven years ago, You began a little movement in this little body And the effects have been global. We almost send out more than we bring in. And so Lord, we just give thanks to you for that. I pray you continue that work, Lord Jesus. pray you continue to raise up young men, young women who want to go to unreached people groups. Continue to raise up men who want to be under shepherds of yours. Continue to raise up people who want to live holy and righteous lives in a dark place, and be agents of the gospel. Give us a desire to be like you, please. And Lord Jesus, we pray that you would give us the strength and ability to stand and sing to you because you sing over us, as delighted in us because you have made us righteous in your work on the cross. So Lord, you sing over us. So Lord, help us to sing back to you and make much of you. Holy Spirit, do your work of counseling, teaching, convicting. Put right. And we pray this in Jesus' name.